Can everyone hear me? Oh. <clears throat> wow. That's a lot different. Reset. Okay. So, as I was saying, how many of the world's 450,000 missionaries would you guess are working among unreached people groups? People groups where the evangelical population is less than 2%. Well, it's only about 3% or about 13,500 missionaries worldwide. Now, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which you may know is housed down at Gordon-Conwell, about 2.19 billion people are unreached. They have no reliable access to the gospel message. They have never heard clearly about who Jesus is or what he has done. And if anything, this statistic might be a little bit low because the Joshua Project website considers 3.14 billion people unreached. So the world's 13,500 missionaries who are working among the unreached are tasked with sharing the gospel with two to three billion people. That's one missionary for roughly every 200,000 unreached people. That would be the equivalent of assigning 35 believers to reach the entire population of the state of Massachusetts by themselves. Now, I have read on the internet that 87% of statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> but friends, I am pulling these numbers from the most credible sources that we have. And even if the statistics are somewhat inaccurate, I hope that we can agree that there is no way that the world's current missionary force can ever reach the 7,078 unreached people groups and complete the Great Commission. It's statistically impossible. You might be thinking, okay, I see where Alex is going with this. He's going to pound the pulpit and shout out that the global church needs to send out more missionaries. And yes, I do believe that. But here's the thing. Although it may be a part of the solution, it will only be a relatively small part. Because even if we sent out 100 times the number of foreign missionaries in the next 30 years, I think it would only make a small dent in the unfinished task. Which leads me to the following conclusion. You tell me after the service if you think I'm wrong. Foreign sent missionaries will never complete the Great Commission. At best, they will only be able to accomplish a small fraction of the task. So before Paul comes up here and tackles me and removes me, where does this leave us? Brothers and sisters, have statistical challenges killed the Great Commission? No, not at all. But 
I wonder if we need to change the way that we think. Back in 1974, more than 2,300 evangelical leaders from 150 countries gathered in Lausanne, Switzerland, to participate in the first International Congress on World Evangelization. From that Congress emerged the Lausanne Covenant with John Stott as its chief architect. It's an excellent document. I would recommend that you read it. And if you do, you'll read the following words from the sixth section. We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him, and that this calls for a similar deep and costly penetration of the world. We need to break out of our ecclesiastical ghettos and permeate non-Christian society. In the church's mission of sacrificial service, evangelism is primary. World evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. So this morning, I just want to focus on three words from this quotation. The whole church. Christ sends all of his redeemed people into the world, not just the missionaries. So although missionaries alone will never complete the Great Commission, God will, and he will use the whole church to do it, all of us. In order to substantiate this idea, I want to take you this morning to what I think is a highly overlooked passage in the book of Acts. As you know, the full title for Acts is what? Acts of the Apostles, right? And it's not hard to understand why. The book is dominated primarily by Peter, who is the focus for much of Acts chapters 1 through 11, and then Paul, who is the focus for much of Acts chapters 13 to 28. And yet, tucked between these two halves of the book is a curious and brief passage, Acts 11, 19 through 26. And in it, we will see what I am calling the Acts of the Non-Apostles the surprising role of so-called ordinary believers. We will consider this passage in three scenes, but before we do, let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we are here to celebrate you this morning, and to say that you are alive, and you are our king. You were, you were crucified, but you were raised from the dead, and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and you are reigning. And Father, we thank you for sending your Son, and we thank you for the glorious promise that he will come to judge the world and to create perfect peace here. 
And I pray, Lord, that that hope would sustain us even in the midst of fiery trials. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we are gathered here again on a Sunday, desperate to hear from you, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word this morning. I pray that you would inform us and encourage us, uh, inspire us from your word. We need you, God, and we're asking for your presence to be among us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, let's look at the first scene from this passage, verses 19 through 21, which I have called the birth of mission. Let's read this together, or I'll read it for you. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So let's first rewind the story a bit to catch the context. You will remember back in chapter 1, Jesus declared to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It was primarily Peter, John, and the other apostles who were the leading witnesses in Jerusalem. But who were the pioneers who took the gospel to Judea and Samaria? Was it the apostles? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was not an apostle, bears witness before the high priest and the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And his speech so enrages them that they stone him to death. And then we read this. Next. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So who was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria? Who went about preaching the word and proclaiming Christ? Was it the apostles? No. It seems as if it was everyone except the apostles. It was the so-called ordinary believers who were doing the pioneering work of evangelism, carrying the gospel into new territory. And then the text names just one of them, Philip. Was he an apostle? No. And yet God entrusted the task to him to proclaim Christ in Samaria. Then we read in chapter 8, verse 14, 
Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So thus, in this case, the apostles are following up on the pioneering work done by non-apostles, including Philip. Later in chapter 8, we read about Philip explaining the scriptures to an Ethiopian eunuch who is returning to his homeland from Jerusalem. I think it is implied that after believing the good news about Jesus and being baptized, if anyone first spread the gospel to Ethiopia, it wasn't an apostle, but rather this brand new convert, a so-called ordinary believer. Acts 8 then ends in this way. <clears throat> but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The good news of Jesus Christ is penetrating a number of new towns. And again, it wasn't an apostle doing the work. It was a non-apostle. Beginning in chapter 9, we read that Saul, or Paul, is hunting for believers in Damascus. The first time the city is mentioned in the book of Acts. However, as you know, Paul is confronted by the Lord Jesus before he arrives there. And then verse 10 tells us that there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias who laid his hands on Paul so that his sight might be restored by Jesus. I hope this is sounding familiar. Then in verse 19, the text mentions rather matter-of-factly that for some days he, that is Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, have you ever asked yourself, where did these disciples in Damascus come from? How did Ananias first believe? The text does not say, but I think it is highly unlikely that all of the disciples in Damascus were only transplants from Jerusalem. I think it is much more likely that at least some of them became believers in Damascus when they heard the word proclaimed there. Yet we know with near certainty that if anyone did believe in Damascus, it wasn't because of the witness of the apostles. Because later in chapter 9, it says very clearly that Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles who were still in Jerusalem. So if any pioneering evangelistic work was done in Damascus, it was the ministry of unnamed, ordinary believers. So here is a map of the early movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the road to Gaza to Ethiopia to Azotus all the way to Caesarea and even as far north as Damascus. And who is driving the spread of God's kingdom? Not the apostles. Not even once. It was the work of so-called ordinary believers, including Philip, the non-apostle. Now it is true that Peter is the first one to preach directly to non-Jews. 
Cornelius and his household. Yet it seems as if Cornelius is already connected to a Jewish synagogue as a God-fearer because he is well known to the Jews in Caesarea. And you know the story. Peter preaches the good news about Jesus, and these non-Jews believe and receive the Holy Spirit without being circumcised, which prompts the circumcision party within Jerusalem to criticize Peter. What is intriguing is that after this incident, the book of Acts never mentions Peter preaching to Gentiles again. So it's as if Peter's witness to Cornelius establishes what you might call a proof of concept or an important historical precedent. However, his preaching does not launch a deliberate and systematic mission to the Gentiles. It doesn't. At least not one mentioned in Acts. So with this context in mind, let's return to Acts Chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And we rightly concentrate on that last phrase, to no one except Jews. But don't miss the fact that unnamed so-called ordinary believers, are pushing the geographic boundaries of the kingdom again. Speaking the word as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is significant. The gospel is crossing oceans and moving into new provinces through non-apostles. Then we read, sorry, go back. Then we read in verse 20 that men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and Cyrene was a city in what we would call Libya, North Africa. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, not men of Jerusalem, came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists also. And the contrast between verse 20 and verse 19 makes it clear that these Hellenists are non-Jews. But why does Luke use the term Hellenists, which basically means Greek speakers, a term that was applied to Greek-speaking Jews in chapter 6? I think the reason is that Luke is emphasizing that the gospel is now penetrating a new culture, the Greek culture, that is represented by the Greek language. Antioch, according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome itself. It was a major center of trade and was populated by a number of ethnic groups, including Jews, Greeks, Romans, and even what we may call Orientals from Persia, India, and even China. Antioch was an extremely cosmopolitan city, but all the people there were connected by Greek, the language trade. So Luke is claiming that unnamed, 
so-called ordinary believers, were the first ones to undertake a concerted and sustained effort to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles who may or may not have been connected to the Jewish synagogue. And in that sense, they are the first cross-cultural missionaries in history. And one more time, let me emphasize, these are not apostles. Yet verse 21 tells us why they enjoyed the ministry success that they did. The hand of the Lord was with them. Therefore, by the mighty power of God, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, you can advance it to the, the second map, which is updating, this map updates the movement of the gospel that is narrated in Acts chapter 11. Okay, the places that we just talked about. And once again, it is always and only non-apostles, ordinary men and women filled with the extraordinary spirit of God who are proclaiming Christ and pushing the boundaries of God's kingdom. So let's move to the second scene now. Next slide. Verses 22 through 24, which I would label an apostolic thumbs up. Let me read this passage. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So verse 22 follows a pattern that has already been established in Acts. When the gospel was received in Samaria, the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John. When Peter entered the house of Cornelius, the Gentile ate with him and preached the gospel. The church in Jerusalem, especially the circumcision party, wanted to inquire what had happened. Thus, it seems to me that when the report reached Jerusalem of a great number of Gentiles coming to faith in Antioch, many of whom probably weren't even God-fearers, the church naturally wanted to investigate what was going on. I think it likely that there was a mixed reaction to this report in Jerusalem. Some were probably excited by the news. Some may have been skeptical. And most were probably curious. And in the providence of God, Barnabas may have been the perfect representative to send to Antioch at this key turning point in the history of the early church. We learn in chapter 4 that the name Barnabas means what? Yeah, son of encouragement. And true to his name, verse 23 gives us a textbook example of encouragement in action. Notice first that Barnabas sees the grace of God. Seeing the grace of God in what were probably chaotic and messy circumstances 
requires eyes of faith. This is the necessary first step leading to godly encouragement. Then, seeing the grace of God makes Barnabas glad. If you have the discernment to see the evidence of the grace of God, but do not rejoice in it, then you will not encourage other people. Then finally, the third step is the actual words or exhortation that should be the overflow of joy in the grace of God. The first half of verse 24, then, is a curious addition. It tells us the reason that Paul Barnabas exhorted them was that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So why does Luke add this detail? The way that I interpret it is that if Barnabas was not a good man, or if he was not speaking from the fullness of the Holy Spirit or from faith, then he might have been critical in what he said to the believers there. And this probably would have been easy to do, right? I am sure that Barnabas could have found things in Antioch to criticize if he wanted to. After all, pioneering missions work is often a sloppy business. Mistakes are made, and new believers coming out of a pagan background would have provided a lot of fodder for critique. Yet Barnabas, like Jonathan Edwards in the midst of the Great Awakening in New England, still chose to focus on the positive. And I believe that, brothers and sisters, this should be our primary posture too. We should not be blind to the faults and deficiencies of other believers, but our default reaction should be to rejoice and to encourage each other whenever we see the grace of God at work. And the second half of verse 24 tells us the result of Barnabas's encouragement. A great many people were added to the Lord. His encouragement was like adding gasoline to the fire of the Spirit's work. It just made it grow even bigger. Yet when verse 23 tells us that Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, this suggests to me that his basic message to them was keep doing what you're doing. In other words, Barnabas was encouraging them to continue their work of reaching out to the Gentiles with the gospel. So even when Barnabas arrived on the scene, it was the so-called ordinary believers who continued to proclaim Christ. Finally, the third scene in this passage, next, Verses 25 through 26, Paul, the non-pioneer. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, or Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I have only three brief comments to make on these two verses. First, notice that even though Barnabas approved of what the believers in Antioch were doing, he still searched for Paul and brought him to Antioch. And this suggests that Barnabas recognized that the church in Antioch, which was growing quickly, could benefit from Paul's teaching to strengthen, deepen, and solidify the new faith of that church. Second, the text does not mention that Paul engaged in speaking the word to the Gentiles in Antioch. It only tells us about his teaching ministry there among believers. So at the least, this suggests to me that Paul did not take over the evangelistic ministry of the church or replace the witness of the ordinary believers. Rather, it seems as if they continued their evangelistic work under the instruction and encouragement of Paul and Barnabas. And third, consider the last sentence in the passage. Commentators are quick to point out that the term Christians was not a self-designation. It was not what believers called themselves, but rather was a sarcastic nickname given to them. It may have meant something like Jesus groupies in today's language. Well, one thing I find significant is that this term of derision was applied to all of the disciples, not just specifically Paul and Barnabas. Why would the citizens of Antioch call all the disciples Christians? Well, probably because all the disciples were proclaiming Christ publicly and vocally associating themselves with Christ. This again suggests that all believers, whether apostles or not, viewed it as their responsibility to talk to unbelievers about Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, yes, but after Paul started his missionary journeys, he did virtually all of the pioneering cross-cultural missions for the early church. And actually, that is not true either. While I can't address this objection thoroughly this morning, let me make just two observations. Two chapters later, in Acts 13, Paul preaches in Antioch of Pisidia, a different Antioch than is mentioned in chapter 11. And when Jews there become jealous and begin to contradict Paul, he declares in a pivotal moment that he is turning to the Gentiles. And then we read this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. 
the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region? How is that happening? It must have been by the mouths of unnamed, ordinary believers, filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy, right? They are the ones through whom the word is radiating outward from Antioch of Pisidia. Second observation. I would argue that from Acts 19, and hold it just for a second, Acts 19.21 onward, when Paul resolves in the spirit to go to Rome, the next nine chapters of the book of Acts are filled with dramatic tension as to whether Paul will make it to Rome or not, right? You may remember he faces opposition and imprisonment and plots on his life. There's a shipwreck and he's bitten by a snake. And even believers are urging him not to go there. But God stands by him and assures him, you must testify also in Rome. So what happens? After years of travel, when Paul finally reaches the imperial capital of the ancient world at the climax of the book of Acts, we read this. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up and on the second day, we came to Pateoli. Now, Pateoli was a port city about 150 miles down the coast from Rome. Verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, that is in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three caverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Do you see? Even though Paul is reaching Rome for the first time, the gospel beat him there years ago. The word of the Lord has been spreading not through apostles, but through so-called ordinary believers penetrating the very heart of the Roman Empire with their bold witness. And when Paul sees the warm welcome he is receiving, he thanks God and takes courage. Why? I think because he knows that the hand of the Lord is with him just as it is with those who have already been preaching in Rome. Jesus' promise in chapter 1 that his witnesses will reach the ends of the earth is being fulfilled, and it has been the whole church that has done it. So, looping back to our text for this morning, Acts 11, 19-26, let me ask you, why would Luke include this curious episode in the middle of the book? Why would he choose to narrate this story? 
what conclusions may we draw from it? In the American Evangelical Church, I wonder if we have overdrawn the distinction between goers and senders in the church's mission. You may have heard of this distinction, right? Some are called to go, and the rest are called to send them. Now, there is, of course, biblical warrant for this kind of language. In the book of 3 John, we read this. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And Betsy and I are certainly very thankful that King of Grace has sent us to Indonesia. And we feel that you have done so in a manner worthy of God. However, remember that throughout the book of Acts, it was not the apostles who were doing the majority of the pioneering work. Neither was it those who were deliberately sent out by local churches for the sake of the name, such as Paul's co-workers. Rather, the gospel mainly advanced because ordinary believers were telling the people around them about Jesus. They were speaking the word with boldness. And this is exactly what we see happening in Indonesia today. If you can advance it to the band team. The bulk of missions is not being done by the foreign missionaries. I think we have a crucial role to play, but we are mostly encouraging, training, supporting, funding, and connecting indigenous Indonesian church planters. And truth be told, though I consider the Indonesian church planters with which our team partners to be real heroes of the faith, it is not primarily these church planters either who are doing most of the frontline gospel work. It's not. Rather, it is an unnamed but vast army of business people, students, housewives, farmers, and fishermen, ordinary believers filled with the extraordinary spirit of God who are telling family, friends, co-workers, and strangers around them about Jesus. It is these who are most often pushing the gospel into new territories and advancing the kingdom. And isn't that just like our God? Brothers and sisters, to use the foolish, the weak, the low and overlooked in the world's eye, to accomplish his purposes so that no one may boast. If the 166 million unreached in Indonesia are going to hear the gospel, it will not primarily be because of a handful of foreign missionaries. 
It will rather be because the hand of the Lord was with ordinary Indonesian believers who proclaim the Lord Jesus. Yes, as a missionary, I have a role to play. But I believe that what is required is for the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole of Indonesia and to the whole world. So brothers and sisters, in Boston and throughout New England, like in ancient Antioch, the nations are gathering. They are coming here. The King of Grace has a part to play in their, in their evangelization. Not only in praying and supporting workers to reach them, but in speaking to them ourselves. If the gospel is going to advance in this region and among the nations, I believe that it is not going to be primarily through vocational Christian workers. It will be all of us, the whole church, working together and speaking boldly. Yes, you may feel intimidated in sharing the gospel with those around you. But friends, can't we just talk to people about Jesus? Can't we bear witness to what he has done in our lives? Do we not have the same spirit that dwelled in Peter and Paul? Do we not have the same message of salvation? that they did. I want to leave you with a line that summarizes the thrust of my message this morning. The goers are not enough. That is, the foreign-sent missionaries cannot complete the task by themselves. The goers are not enough. So the senders must also become Father, I look out into this room and I don't see any ordinary believers. Father, if you have filled us with your Holy Spirit and given us the message of eternal salvation, empowered us to preach Christ, proclaim your word, God, we are by no means ordinary unimportant believers in your great mission in this world. We all have a part to play. God, and I pray that you would stir up within this church a bold witness testifying to the greatness and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How much he has done for us in our lives. And I pray that we would be eager and ready to share that with others for the sake of your name here in Bradford, in Massachusetts, in New England, God, even to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen.